Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in History. My name is Christine Lamberson, and I'll be your host today. Today, I'm speaking with Jason Pierce, who's an associate professor at Angelo State University, and we will be talking about his new book, Making the White Man's West, Whiteness and the Creation of the American West, which just came out in 2016 with the University Press of Colorado. Welcome, Jason. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. It's good to be here. Great. Um, so I want to start by just talking a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in becoming a historian. So what brought you to this great uh, profession? Uh, well, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I, I guess, uh, you know, I grew up in southwestern Colorado and we had uh, a lot of kind of interesting historical things nearby. You know, we had a lot of Native American sites like Mesa Verde National Park where we would always go to for, you know, uh, every every year's field trip was like load all the kids up and go to Mesa Verde. So uh, that was fun. And there were a lot of, you know, um, mining sites and things like that in the area. So, you, you know, you could kind of sense, kind of feel the history uh, around you, I guess. And so that must have been where I got inter- interested in it, I guess. Okay, great. And so your book is about the West, and your book talks a lot about um, how, as the title says, how the West became seen as a kind of white man's paradise might be an overstatement, but at least a white man's country. And so I was wondering yeah. if you could talk a little bit about how you got interested in this topic, how you came to this book project. Well, um, some of it came about just you know, trying to figure out what I wanted to do for my dissertation in, in college, you know, uh, talking to my advisor and running some ideas. And most of, mostly his eyes were sort of glazed over when I mentioned some other ideas. And then I mentioned this one about looking at, you know, why the West is kind of created or sort of mythologized as being the perfect place for, for the white man, you know, uh, this this sort of last best place kind of idea. You know, why do you have places like Idaho sort of equated with white supremacy. How did all of this stuff kind of come about? And he was really excited about that topic, and it was one that I'd been kind of kicking around in various ways. Um, For example, when I grew up uh, in southwestern Colorado, we had a few Native American kids in my school, and we had uh, a few Hispanic kids, but we only had one black kid. And when I was a, a little, you know, elementary school kid on the bus, I remember him telling us that he was actually born white, and then he turned into, you know, he got this disease and it turned in black and we were like oh my gosh can that happen and we were all freaked out and you know as i got older i you know started to think about what must have been like for this guy you know he'd been adopted by a family and he was you know the only african-american kid probably within a hundred mile radius and you know and why was that why 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 was the area that i grew up in you know so overwhelmingly you know probably 95 percent white and and so in some ways, I guess I'd been kind of thinking about these issues, you know, for years and years and years, and uh, and then thought, well, you know, look at it uh, as a historian, look at how how did this come about, and why is this section of the country so much different than the the other parts of it? So, I think that's where it sort of came from, in a, in a way. So. Great. And so you have a fascinating story about that. I was wondering before we kind of dive into that story and how that did come to be, if you could talk a little bit about what we're talking about when we talk about the West, since, of course, that definition changes over time and it's different, you know, today right, than it has yeah. been in the past. And also when we think about the West, we often think about something very different uh, in our, the image in our mind for somewhere like Colorado versus somewhere like California, for instance. So what what part of the West are you talking about here? Well, I uh, I definitely had a kind of expansive view. I mean, I kept it as pretty much the Trans-Mississippi West. Uh, but you're right. I mean, there's a lot. There are a lot of arguments that historians have made about, you know, what is the West? All the subregions of the West. The Pacific Coast is vastly different than Texas, and you know, Wyoming is different from uh, Utah even. And and so there's a lot of debate about that. But 
I kind of thought that, you know, there's this process of settlement uh, beginning after 1803 with the purchase of the Louisiana Territory that kind of continues on through the rest of the century in some way. And so the process of settling the West, uh, the the people were, you know, somewhat, maybe not homogenous, but they were certainly uh, Anglo-Americans. But the process is a little different. Uh, when you come into the Southwest, into Texas and California, you're going to be encountering a much more, you know, entrenched population of Hispanic peoples that have been there for a very long time. So that's a lot different than, say, Minnesota, where you're going to see people coming in, uh, mostly Scandinavians, who are coming in as Indian peoples are being displaced and moved west. Uh, so there is a, a definite, you know, there there are some sub-geographic distinctions and things like that. But for me, you know, I wanted to see how this process uh, unfolds. But there is a kind of distinction um, you get a, a sense of the the northern states, the Dakotas, Montana, those places, as kind of utterly dominated by Anglo-Americans or peoples of northern European uh, ancestry settling in the West. And then in the Southwest, there's these same people, you know, the people, uh, Anglo-Americans moving into that area did have to take into account the, the racial diversity uh, of California in particular, but Texas, New Mexico, those places as well. Uh, and so it does, there are some differences in how it, this plays out in the different regions. Okay. So you're telling a story about the 19th century, and you're telling the story about the this Trans-Mississippi West. So what does this area look like on the ground? And then maybe we can talk a little bit about how this image comes to comes to be and why in some ways it might be counterintuitive. Okay, yeah, well, great questions. Um, so uh, I begin roughly uh, basically in 1803 because that's the moment the United States acquires the Louisiana Territory, starts looking to go beyond uh, its borders, uh, you know, that it, it's created or it, it has at it, its moment of creation. And so obviously Thomas Jefferson's playing a big role in that whole process. And he really looks to the West uh, and has this grand vision of what the West is going to be, you know, this empire of liberty that he talks about. And he's got this plan to uh, send all these little yeoman farmers, these hardworking, small, white family farmers out there to colonize all these places. And it's it's going to be this just fabulous place, you know, uh, take a thousand years to settle, he thinks, uh, and all of that kind of stuff. And and so this will be a way to kind of perpetuate, Jefferson thinks, American democracy in the decades and, and even centuries to come. That we, you know, we won't have to worry about us becoming like the Europeans, uh, working in factories, all that kind of stuff. But so he's got this big vision uh, but the problem is he kind of bumps up against uh, reality or what appears to be reality very quickly. And that is when they start sending expeditions to go out to this place, they come back with some pretty dismal reports. Uh, Lewis and Clark, not as much, but you have Zebulon Pike, uh, later, you know, uh, Stephen Long. These guys are going out there, coming back and saying, ah, man, there's nothing out here. It's just a wasteland. It's a desert for for untold miles, and, you know, they, they claim to see vast sand dunes in uh, eastern Colorado and all these things, you know, uh, comparing it to the Sahara Desert. Well, all of that then kind of puts Jefferson's idea, uh, calls it into question. You know, is this really going to be a place that people can go and settle? Increasingly, it looks like it's not. Um, so what do you do with it then? Uh, and at first, they come up with, um, you know, some some ideas, uh, one of which is to use this to kind of racially purify the nation. So there are various schemes to move free African-Americans and maybe perhaps someday all African-Americans maybe out to somewhere in this West. There's plans to create an all-black state where you could settle all these people and then you wouldn't have them, you know, in the United States or in the rest of the, the country. You know, you could kind of purify them. The same thing, of course, with Native Americans, let's move them all out of the East uh, and give them time to be civilized, all that, you know, and, and adapted to our ways and all that, you know, justification that uh, Indian removal has. Well, uh, the idea then is that we can kind of keep these these groups kind of on the edge of, of everything, uh, away from the, the Republic, you know, the central part of the Republic and all of that. Uh, it, it, it kind of never happens, obviously. Uh, 
African-Americans are never sent in large numbers to some state out in the Trans-Mississippi West. And in fact, eventually, the movement really focuses on a kind of return to Africa, you know, the founding of Liberia, all that stuff. But Native Americans are moved, uh, of course, to Indian territory, uh, sending them out there to try to kind of not only get access to their land, but also to remove this kind of this this element of the population that, you know, is sort of anomalous, doesn't seem to fit the views of citizenship, all that kind of stuff. And so for a while, then it looks like that's what the West is going to be. Uh, and people who go out there, Washington Irving goes out there, he comes back with nothing good to say about it. He talks about how this is going to be nothing but a kind of American, uh, you know, Siberia or a kind of American, you know, uh, uh, Arabia, where you're just going to have these wandering groups of sort of racially mixed people, you know, preying on settlers and things like that. And so it looks like for a while that that's what the West is going to be, that the West is just going to be this kind of dumping ground for uh, for the people that we don't want in the rest of our republic. And that continues on until people start settling in Texas, Anglo-Americans start going into Texas, and of course the Mexican-American War, and shortly after that, the discovery of gold in California. And then that changes the dynamic completely. So that's kind of the first period of what I think, uh, you know, is uh, is going on there. So, Okay, so suddenly there's gold out there and everybody wants to go west, despite the fact it had been, you know, these Native American land or had been supposedly being reserved to be Native American land. So once they rush out there, then this poses a problem that you have all these Native Americans, both from a, you know, practical point of view, but then also from an ideological point of view. So, so what happens there? Right. So suddenly what was supposed to be right, these, uh, they're supposed to be on the outside looking in is how uh, one, you know, guy puts it, you know, uh, but instead suddenly Indian territory and all the Indians, like the Lakota, Comanches, all of these people that, we're supposed to always be out there and just kind of on the edges. Well, suddenly they're right smack in the middle of the heart of, of this now continental nation after, after the Mexican-American War. And so, um, you know, what are we going to do about that is going to be a continuing question that uh, we're going to wrestle with. The other question, then, is to try to uh, reverse this idea that the West is this wasteland uh, that's, you know, ill-suited to Anglo civilization because, you know, Washington Irving, among others, had said, you know, we're never going to be able to settle this place. Other people had gone out and, uh, and, and especially to places like California, um, uh, Texas, uh, New Mexico, uh, had, you know, gone out there and visited or, or part of, you know, maybe the Hyde trade or part of the uh, Santa Fe trade. And then they had come back and say and said, well, you know, actually the weather is really amazingly fantastic out here. It's this really great place, but actually it's probably too nice. And if we move out here, we're going to end up being just as lazy as all the Mexicans that you see in, you know, in San Antonio or, or uh, you know, Los Angeles. And supposedly, you know, the, the great weather had transformed them into this, this kind of uh, – not vigorous, kind of torpid, kind of stupid uh, group of people. And the fear then is that, well, if we go and settle these places, we're going to become just like them. You know? And so, you know, once again, there's this fear of the West as ill-suited to uh, Anglo-American settlement. Uh, well, coming to the rescue of that, uh, to that idea, I guess, are a, a group of uh, scientists who are very influential in the 1840s called the polygenesists. And these guys, uh, you know, basically say, well, we don't need to worry about what the Indians are like or what the Mexicans are like, because uh, we believe that people were actually created different in different places at different times. And so, uh, you know, the Indians were created separately from, from white people in a separate creation. So rather than arguing for a kind of unified creation of, and then people sort of distributing from uh, a central point of genesis, they're talking that there were multiple places where people had emerged. Um, some guys like Louis uh, Agassiz, a Swiss scientist who comes to the United States, quickly establishes himself as probably America's most famous scientist. He compares Native Americans and European Americans to uh, to bears and, and, and tigers, and he says, if you look at both of them, they both have claws and fangs, but they're not the same species. They're completely different animals. And so uh, the upshot of all of that, then, is that 
uh, Anglos can go to the West, conquer the West, conquer the peoples in the West, and be assured that we wouldn't become lazy and, and torpid just because the weather was better. So, so now they start to build up this idea that perhaps, uh, you know, the West is, uh, with the, the better superior weather can actually be good for Anglo-Americans, that finally, after centuries of battling cold weather and all these terrible things, we can use our ingenuity to, uh, to you know, turn it loose and create the, uh, the best civilization the world has ever seen. And so you get promoters like uh, Charles uh, uh, Fletcher Lummis, uh, who's talking about that, you know, saying, uh, you know, once you... Uh, put, you know, Anglo ingenuity in this great climate, we're going to do things, uh, invent things, and, and expand in a way that nobody has ever seen before. And so they kind of reinvent the West to make it uh, seem like the perfect place for Anglo-American settlement. Whereas just a few decades before, the fear was that this was a place that we, we shouldn't go. Uh, and so it's a, a kind of intellectual gymnastics that really leads to kind of complete reversal and the uh, the idea of the suitability of this of these regions for for settlement. So, yeah, the discussion of the weather was really one of my favorite parts of your book. I love this idea of uh, that we're all going to be lazy as long as the weather is good. Right. Yeah. So exactly. they're doing this kind of uh, they're conducting this new ideological project. So how are they doing this and? perhaps to put this in a different way, kind of thinking about your book, what is sort of sources are you looking at and how are they actually conducting this kind of culture uh, building or um, remaking of an intellectual project on a, such a broad scale, right? How are they accomplishing that? Where do you see that? What kind of sources are you looking at to find out about that? Well, there there are a bunch. I mentioned uh, Charles Fletcher Lemus, and he, um, he kind of sees himself as sort of the archetype of uh, of this uh, this whole project, um, he goes west uh, in 1885. He uh, he walks from Chillicothe, Ohio, all the way to Los Angeles, uh, in part because it's a publicity stunt to kind of raise people's awareness of who he is. He's but he's going to work at the Los Angeles Times, and so he he walks the whole way. By this time, of course, you could take the train. In fact, his wife meets him up at various places, you know, Denver and places like that. But he decides to to walk. Because he will, you know, part of it is he's a kind of an acolyte of that Teddy Roosevelt idea of the strenuous life that a real man does these real manly things, and and the other re- and partially it's promotion, uh, and the other reason I think is he's trying to to kind of get a, a sense of, of of this region, and you do see a kind of transformation as he as he as he goes, but from Ohio to uh, to uh, to Los Angeles, uh, you know, at first he's he calls himself a sort of narrow-minded Yankee, and he sees the you know the Indians as sort of backwards. At one point, he goes to a village in southern Colorado of, uh, of uh, Hispanics, and he makes fun of the food they eat and how spicy it is, and they're making joke that's something to the effect that you know a, uh, a coyote will not touch the flesh of a dead greaser because it's so stuffed with all the pepper they eat, and you know I think that's really funny. And then uh, and then uh, he sends a letter back talking about all this stuff. And then the very next letter he writes, the next time he gets to a post office several weeks later, he recants all of this and says, you know, my last letter, I'm basically, I was an idiot. You know, I've come to understand that these people are actually, you know, really pretty nice and they've helped me and their culture is interesting, all this. So he kind of changes his view. Now, he never changes the fact that he's, in a sense, superior to all of these groups, but he finds Indian cultures fascinating and uh, Hispanic culture fascinating and all of those things, but he he does become a kind of popularizer of the idea of the West as this kind of best place for Anglo Americans to settle, in particular California. And so he'll spend his time at the Los Angeles Times, uh, and especially when he becomes editor of uh, of the Land of Sunshine magazine, uh, kind of promoting California as this sort of idyllic place for uh, Anglo-Americans to settle. And then he's not alone. Uh, you see other uh, people kind of, uh, a lot of these are promoters, you know, obviously, who have a kind of self-interest in encouraging people to come out uh, to the to the West as, uh, as well. So uh, another guy I talk about uh, a lot um, is the uh, 
he's the founder of the uh, Denver and Rio Grande Railroad, uh, oh, geez, uh, Palmer. Uh, and Palmer writes some letters back to his fiance, trying to convince her and his, uh, and more importantly, his mother-in-law to let her move out to Colorado uh, in the 1870s, you know, because there's this, well, what about Indians or, you know, are you going to kill? And he's basically saying, you know, don't worry about the Indians. Uh, and we're building up this amazing culture uh, out here, uh, you know, a chance to kind of create the perfect society uh, from sort of whole cloth, you know. Uh, and so he writes back basically saying, you know, you don't need to worry about the savages out here in the West because there really aren't any that you need to worry about. And the real place of savagery, he claims, is the East Coast where all these, you know, immigrants are coming in from Southern and Eastern Europe who are not compatible with American society. That That's the real, what he calls, briny border uh, of America. So in other words, you know, the East is sort of doomed. They're letting in all of these uh, undesirable people People who can also, uh, because they're you know considered white, even though they're Italians or Greeks or Poles or whatever, uh, they can vote, uh, but they're not really compatible with what it means to be an American. Whereas in the West, Anglo-Americans can kind of rule without challenge because Indians, of course, do not have rights. Uh, Mexican-Americans, uh, for the most part, uh, with some exceptions in New Mexico, really don't have any political power either. Uh, Chinese, which are you know the only large Chinese population in the countries in the uh, the Pacific Coast as well, but they too are denied any rights. And so, you know, we Anglo Americans are sort of unchallenged at the pinnacle of power and don't have to worry about these uh, these immigrants coming in and taking their power away the the way it appears that uh, that that's happening say, on the, uh, on the East Coast. And so, this is kind of whole you know selling uh, promotion of this this idea of this kind of perfect, uh, you know, uh, society that they're developing out there. Okay. So I have a couple of questions kind of continuing on from there. One is to think a little bit about how much this is a story of, you know, building the West and having these desirable features in the West that didn't need to be somehow rewritten as acceptable, right? The the weather is desirable, which we used to think was bad, and now we have to make that okay. Uh, we used to right. see this yeah. as a, a place, you know, for Native Americans, but now there's gold, so we need to somehow, you know, make it into a place for Anglo-Americans. So how much of this is a rewriting of the story for a pull factor? But then there's also this really important factor of what's going on in the East, the kind of the, the push factor. And I'm wondering if you can talk exactly. a little bit about how those two fit together and, and kind of their relative weight, maybe? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's an excellent question. So there's a couple of the, the push factors, um, that are really kind of contributing to this a little bit earlier in the 1840s, especially the 1850s. Uh, the pull factor has to do with what's going on, or I'm sorry, the push factor, the reasons to leave have to do in part with what's going on, uh, in the rest of the country. Of course, the 1850s, are this incredibly divisive period where the nation is starting to tear itself apart, especially over, you know, of slavery and the expansion of slavery and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so the two states that are admitted to the Union from the West, uh, or the far West at least, in, this, in that decade are California and Oregon. And both of those try to get completely out of this debate. Uh, and they try to do this by saying, we're, well, we're going to be free states. We don't want to come in. Or we don't want slavery. But they also say, but we also don't want any African-Americans either. And so they try to just get away from this entire argument that's tearing the country apart by saying, you know, we're so far away. We're not even going to, we're not going to have slavery, but we're not going to let black people live here either. Problem solves and, and so on. So in that part, yeah, you know, there's this pull again. It's this idea of creating this perfect society and learning from the supposed mistakes of the East, and that means slavery in the South, and also the the presence of free African Americans. They don't want either of those things, so they're going to try, and they do try. Both states do try very hard to not have either uh, slavery or uh, a free black population. So it's a chance to sort of break from the problems that they see, or as they see it. Uh, you know, that are tearing the country apart. So you get that part. And then a little bit later, in the 1870s, 1880s, you know, and, and beyond, when you start to really see an influx of, immigra of immigrants 
coming from Southern and Eastern Europe, you know, there's a lot of debate in America that will really last until the 1920s when we uh, passed the the 1924 Immigration Act that sets up the quota system. You know, uh, before that though, there's all this debate: should we be letting in Italians and Greeks and Poles? Uh, many of them are not Protestants. Most of them, you know, they're they're uh, ethnically different. Their culture's different. Their language is different. They tend to, you know, clump together into ethnic neighborhoods, and they don't want to uh, assimilate into American society. And they're or scientists, especially eugenicists, running around telling everybody, you know, well, this is this is going to lead to demographic collapse. That uh, you guys like Charles Benedict Davenport are saying, you know, if you look at 200 sons of Harvard graduates and then 200 uh, sons of immigrants, well, the immigrants are going to go on to have, you know, 10 kids each, and then the sons of the Harvard graduates are going to only have one or two, and this is going to create this terrible population of you know, degenerate people that will have the numbers to control America, and there's all this kind of alarmist sort of rhetoric. Well, again, the West is, uh, is saying, hey, well, we don't, we're not a part of that, this problem. That's you guys on the East. That's Castle Garden, Ellis Island. You know, you guys have to figure that out because those people don't come out to the West, and the few that do, they make this argument, are, are, are more vigorous, more intelligent uh, willing to brave the hardships of going out to the West. And so there's a kind of process of, uh, you know, like Frederick Jackson Turner talks about, of Americanizing these people as they come to the West, that the, the, the better classes of those immigrants are, are going to come to the West and assimilate, whereas most of them there won't. Uh, and so you get a lot of discussion of this. So again, Charles Fletcher Lummis talks a lot about this. Uh, other people as well, uh, guys like Frank Bird Linderman, uh, people like that, uh, who are saying, uh, we don't want all these immigrants coming into to our area. And in fact, it's kind of interesting because about that same period, a lot of these same people, Lumas and Linderman in particular, start really praising Native American cultures and really talking about Native Americans as worthy of being protected, as being remembered as the first Americans. And so suddenly there's this interest in preserving and collecting Native American history and culture and helping Native Americans uh, establish reservations and things like that. Uh, at the same time, uh, they're also saying, well, we don't want all these you know, Italians and stuff coming into the United States. And so there's a kind of interesting uh, uh, dynamic going on there as well. So. so following right from that, so one of the things is the challenge for this narrative is that there actually are all of these people out there, right? Native Americans, um, Mexican Americans, Chinese immigrants, etc. Um, so what happens to them? How do they fit into the story? You mentioned that eventually there starts to be a celebration of Native Americans and historians have talked about once they become less of a threat, that's of course easier to do. Um, but there's still a presence if you're going to be talking about this being right. a white man's yeah. West. So how do they fit in? And I'm curious kind of both in an ideological sense, if you could talk a bit about that, but then also, and your book talks about the role of violence and the role of power and kind of what it actually means for their lives. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, the historian Elliot West uh, has a phrase that kind of captures this, and he, he says kind of what happens is the people, uh, they, all of these groups, Native Americans, you know, Mexican Americans, uh, uh, Asian immigrants, they go from being seen as people of color to peoples of local color, so they become a kind of regional distinction. So guys, uh, a reason that the West is so interesting and unique. And so one of the big tourist attractions in California becomes Chinatown and uh, in San Francisco. And so it's this great place to go visit, to get to sort of soak in this exotic culture uh, of, the, of the Chinese. And there are postcards you could send back to your folks of uh, opium dens. You could go tour an opium den and see people, you know, gonked out, gorked out of their mind on opium and send us back to your parents. And, oh, look, I'm having a great time in California. Or, you know, I'm kind of uh, going to the old missions in California or going to a, a Fandango, you know, a Mexican dance in San Antonio or something like that. And you could kind of soak in 
this this color, this local color, and this exoticism of the, that the West offered, or go to a pueblo and see the you know Indians living in in their villages and things like that. And so um, it became one of the, the unique characteristics of the West. But at the same time, those all those groups are also dispossessed, and they're dispossessed politically uh, by and large because they're they're not eligible for citizenship. Uh, acts like uh, the, Chinese, the, the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act will limit the population of the Chinese. They're not allowed to become citizens, at least the first generation isn't. The 14th Amendment will actually allow you know, Asian immigrants to, that are born here to become citizens, but that first generation is going to be denied citizenship. Native Americans, for the most part, are denied citizenship. Uh, and Hispanics, even though they're under the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, they are citizens, there are going to be a variety of mechanisms to keep them from exercising any real political power pretty much everywhere but New Mexico. New Mexico is the only kind of exception where you see Hispanics still having, uh, you know, being elected to political office and stuff like that. And, and then, of course, one of the mechanisms by which this dispossession happens is this violence. And so there's going to be a great deal of violence directed at all of these, uh, these groups. Um, obviously, Native Americans are going to be... Uh, dispossessed and forced onto reservations uh, by uh, military campaigns. But there is a lot of violence directed at the Chinese, a lot of riots all across the West. Uh, Rock Springs, Wyoming was one of the worst, but they have riots in Seattle and Tacoma and Denver. uh, And all of these are kind of designed to kind of intimidate and and, and sort of, uh, you know, put these people in kind of a secondary uh, status. Same thing happens in Texas, um, especially with Mexican Americans, who are going to find themselves sort of violently uh, put into secondary status, and often, uh, you know, for uh, uh, forced into a kind of a quasi segregation. There'll be a sort of informal segregation for Mexican Americans across Texas, just as there is for for African Americans. And so, so you can celebrate in the Southwest. This this distinctive these distinctive kind of interesting cultures. At the same time, they're not a threat to the dominance of Anglo Americans, uh, the way say Italian immigrants in New York are uh, are a threat or seen as a threat. You know, back east where these political machines are taking over, and of course those machines are using a lot of the the votes uh, of those immigrants to stay in power, and so you don't have that problem uh, out in the uh, in, in the uh, in the West. So that's kind of how that process works. And so how does this violent fit violence fit into that ideology in the sense it's serving, of course, to actually dispossess these others as they are seen at that moment mm-hmm. um, and kind of take away their power so as to keep Anglo-Americans in the positions of political power. But then in some ways, it seems to me like this is also creating sort of that the image of the West as potentially dangerous. How does that actual violence fit into these narratives? Well, that's a, you know, that's a, a great question. Um, and so the idea, I guess, is that these are sort of temporary, that this is, uh, you know, that law and order will kind of prevail in the end, um, that you, you know, you're safe to go out there uh, and all of that stuff. But in Texas, the Texas Rangers are one of the more controversial uh, groups in, uh, in Texas history. Of course, they're held up as great heroes, fighting against the Indians, you know, fighting against outlaws, and so they're they're you know held up generally with great regard in Texas. But at the same time, especially Mexican Americans have this long a very complicated history with the Texas Rangers or groups that are sort of quasi-Texas Rangers um, uh, kind of violently attacking and then killing people with really very little provocation. And um, and there are outbursts of this where it's at times when it's worse than others. Uh, the years of the Mexican Revolution in Texas are particularly violent. Uh, there's this great fear of the revolution spilling over into Texas and uh, there are these, you know, rumored campaigns of, you know, race war. Uh, the, the Plan de San Diego is the big one where there's a supposedly secret kind of takeover of Texas planned. Uh, and so the Rangers uh, will violently crack down on any of those sorts of 
uh, of, uh, of activities that they think are happening. And so, uh, but it's seen as part of this larger campaign, I guess, of establishing law and order. Uh, and so there doesn't seem to be, you know, you do have a, a few years, uh, you know, Palmer's fiance worrying about coming to Colorado and being attacked by Indians. There's a few, uh, you know, there are some years of that. But really, by the time you kind of get into the, the 1880s, the sense is that it's for most places you're, you know, you're pretty safe. And so that doesn't seem that I, uh, I found uh, a lot of fear of that. that I mean, the, the image, the mythology of the Wild West is still there. And that is something that some of these uh, guys will have to argue against. Charles Fletcher Lummis spends a lot of his time, you know, trying to explain to people that this is actually the most civilized section of the country and that this is the, the most modern section of the country. The infrastructure is brand new and, and we don't have slums and we don't have shiftless, you know, people who are, uh, you know, sucking off uh, the, the, you know, society or any of that, you know, that it's all hardworking uh, people. And so they, they do spend some time kind of addressing some of those fears of, of, being somewhat uncouth and, uh, and backwards and underdeveloped and stuff like that. And so they're, they're constantly touting their technological innovations and, and all the new, you know, every town praises its new building, every, you know, and oh, we have the most modern, you know, buildings in the, you know, and on and on and on. So they, they are kind of aware of that, um, that, uh, that perception. Uh, and so they try to reverse it. They try to say that the real frontier is not the West, the real frontier is the East with all these, you know, immigrants coming in who are not, uh, you know, indigestible is the term they often use. They can't be assimilated into American culture. So they try to flip that idea kind of on its ear. Um, so I was wondering also if you might tell us if there was anything you found particularly surprising or any kind of, you know, favorite moments of doing research for this book and kind of uh, figuring out the story and teasing out this process. One of the interesting ones was uh, when I, uh, I got here, uh, I, inherited a gra- uh, I inherited a graduate student who just happened to be working on a similar pro- uh, project looking at kind of some of the racial issues uh, in the Contra Valley. He brought in this, this paper, and he had this fantastic quote, uh, you know, one of those quotes that, like, summed up everything. And so I, I was like, you know, Matt, can I borrow this quote? This is really amazing. This is like been researching this for years and I haven't found a quote that, that really encapsulates this as well as this one in his paper. And he's like, oh yeah. So it was a kind of serendipitous moment. I sort of end up in the, uh, in San Angelo here. Uh, and the, this student is working on a paper about the, uh, you know, looking at whiteness issues in West Texas and all that kind of stuff. And he found this, this great quote out of the San Angelo standard times, uh, the local newspaper here. Uh, and it talks about, uh, uh, this parade, yeah, and it's a uh, Founders Day parade in San Angelo, uh, where which is your typical small town parade. It's 1910, and so it's you know, local bands and the little floats and you know, wagons and lots of farm equipment, I'm sure. And then uh, the KKK, you know, uh, water marching down the streets and waving at everybody and all that kind of stuff. And then the paper, you know, says that off to the side. Uh, was uh, was one of the founders of Texas, a, guy, a Texas Ranger named John W. Long, and the reporter writes, "Few of the great multitudes who witnessed Monday's parade of old timers were cognizant of the fact that there stood in their midst one of the fathers of Texas." Uh, and he talks about how this guy, you know, had fought uh, with Sol Ross at the Battle of Pease River, where they rescued or redeemed, is the term they used at the time, uh, Cynthia Ann Parker, who had been. Uh, a white woman had been living with the Comanches, you know, and then supposedly he was at this battle, which is, you know, this really famous moment in Texas history. Uh, then he goes off to fight for the Confederacy during the war and, you know, and all this, you know, this, this is this hero of Texas. And uh, so uh, the, the journalist writes, uh, you know, he's kind of reflecting on his career and, he, and Long says, I fought for years with the Rangers and pioneers to make this a white man's country and fought four years to keep the nigger from being as good as a white man. In the first, I went out. In the second, I lost. But I glory in the knowledge that West Texas will always be what we fought for and what the Lord intended it to be, a white man's country. And so there was this phenomenal quote, you know, that my student found that was like, yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. You know, this idea of this, this mythology that the, the West is going to be different because it doesn't suffer from these, these problems, right? That they remove the Indians and 
you know, and uh, and he you know kept you know, all the other groups in kind of a subs you know subservient sort of position, and that kind of summed up. So that was kind of an interesting moment, you know, uh, in the whole whole process. You know, you find those really great quotes that really kind of sum up stuff. You know, you uh, you always kind of jump for joy. And I had another one right there, the book I put into. I kind of compare that quote with Charles Fletcher Lummis and. Loma says this great quote, too, where he uh, writes in the Land of Sunshine uh, about California, and he says, Our foreign element is a few thousand industrious Chinamen and perhaps 500 native Californians who do not speak English. The ignorant, hopelessly un-American type of foreigners which infests and largely controls eastern cities is almost unknown here. Poverty and illiteracy do not exist as classes, right? And so here he's hitting that other part about why the West is now actually the superior section of the country to uh, to the east, that we don't have these big, profound social problems of poverty and uh, and all of those things that the, the slums of New York and Chicago and, uh, and Philadelphia and all those places supposedly have. So, you know, you find a few of those. Uh, it's always fun, you know, you're, to, to get somebody who finally says, you know, exactly what you think the, the, these people are believing and people put it to words. And when you do studies on, on issues of race and stuff, that can be hard uh, to do. And I think it's especially hard the closer you get uh, to our time. So when you're working in the 19th century, you will have guys like the Texas Ranger, you know, long saying exactly what they believe. When you get to doing work in more modern times, people use a lot of codes and things like that. So... Uh, the 19th century, I think, in some ways is easier to do than, say, the 20th century because people are much more upfront back then with what they believe, I think, in, in a lot of ways. So. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, so you are, you know, at heart interested in the 19th century and at least the early 20th century. But nonetheless, I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about um, kind of the leg- legacy of this narrative and of this image of the West. I mean, you you started out telling us a little bit about your childhood and how that helped contribute to your interest in this. So how has this idea um, shifted or, or come come down to the present or come down to us in the present? Yeah, I, that's a good one, a question. I think it's, uh, I think the truth is it's still there. Uh, I, you know, when you look at the presidential campaigns, when you look at a lot of policy that's been made in the West in the last 20 years or so, there's, I think, a concerted effort in some ways to protect this idea that the white of the white man's West, you know, that the West is still this this perfect place for Anglo Americans, you know, this again, this this idea of this sort of last best place, the kind of last stand for true Americanness, you know, baby uh, in the West, or at least that's the the idea that you have. Uh, you really see a lot of you have, and you can really see you really see it around. Uh, you have anti-government types, uh, the Bundy family, of course, is probably most famous and taking over refuges and things like that. Most of that is not explicitly about race. Mostly it's about the government. But when you dig a scratch a little bit deeper, one of their problems is they think the government does too much to help uh, ethnic minorities and not enough to help the sort of beleaguered white man, you know, who's the, you know, the the man who made America what it is and has worked hard and never asked for a handout and is independent, all that kind of stuff. And then you have, you know, these minority groups that, well, they just, you know, are on the government dole and all. So you start to see some of that kind of rhetoric kind of being pulled out. You also see that reflected in policy. California in the 90s passed laws that wouldn't allow, uh, you know, children of illegal immigrants to get access to public uh, assistance of it, of uh, public programs of various sorts. You've seen efforts like uh, in Arizona to uh, mandate, you know, driver's licenses to allow people to uh, pull, uh, policemen to pull over drivers and ask about their immigration status and where they're from. Obviously, that's mostly going to be uh, you know, Hispanic peoples that are going to be questioned about their their status, and and, and of course, most uh, most famously uh, and unrealistically, Donald Trump's massive wall. That this is the the solution to preserving uh, America and the West. Right? This it seems like a great simple solution, and after all, it's a wall. You know, it's tangible, it's concrete. Let's build this thing, and so let's protect 
uh, you know, America from these uh, these immigrants coming in and all of that stuff. And so it's it's still there, and I think it's, the West is still seen as this sort of white man's refuge. You know, uh, I make a, a reference there to Mark Furman in the beginning, the, the, the cop in the O.J. Simpson case, who was, uh, you know, kind of discredited for him because he was ostensibly a, a racist, right? Well, he quits the LAPD, and where does he go? Well, he moves to Sandpoint, Idaho, which is a stronghold of the Aryan nations, and everyone kind of shrugs their shoulders and says, well, yeah, I guess that makes sense, you know? And so there's a, still this this idea, right, that this, uh, the, the, this part of the country is different, especially the Pacific Northwest. And the Aryan nations has long talked about, you know, this idea of a homeland for white people, that this is the... The, you know, they, they had a, at one point talked about taking the Pacific Northwest and kind of separating it from the rest, of seceding from the United States and creating this kind of utopian, racist, white man society up there, you know. Um, so, yeah, so I think it's, uh, it's an idea that's still very much uh, around. Uh, and, and, and I think it's a national idea, you know, the, the sense uh, Trump, of course, is drawing most of his support from uh whites uh mi- you know middle class whites and lower class whites many of whom are worried about their social status to uh feel like they haven't ever benefited from uh you know what's going on in american society that welfare programs are helping minorities and that they're being kind of screwed over on that side but also by you know wealthier people and so there's this this sense of a kind of uh racial anger i think that's really kind of running through the election but when you get to the West, there are there's a kind of Western dimension to that, you know, focusing on dislike of the federal government, um, you know, you know and, and this this legacy of viewing this region as kind of uh, racially a sort of homeland or something. Mm-hmm. Is there a way in which I, I know at the beginning you said you're not as uh, interested in these sort of definitional boundary drawing uh, battles, but is there a way in which in, in some ways maybe today the idea of of the West that is this sort of stronghold has shrunk in some ways? Because, I mean, it strikes me you're talking a lot about how these ideas persist, but they also have a, a beleaguered nature to them, right? There's kind of a, a feeling that they are not... Um, or that the white man's West might be in trouble on some level, maybe you might be a way to yeah. think about it. Um, and it seems like somewhere like California has passed these laws, but on the other hand, it's also incredibly diverse and has lots and lots of immigrants and racial diversity. Absolutely. And that's part of its character as well. And in some ways that, you know, Idaho also has an image of people off in bunkers being, you know, protecting themselves. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's true. Um, and California first was the first of the Western states in the 90s to lose the white racial majority. So before that, non-Hispanic whites were more than 50% of the population in the 90s. And there was a great deal of discussion about this. Uh, while whites are still the, the, the largest single group, they don't comprise more than 50% of the population. And so now California... Uh, has a very, very large population of, uh, of Asians, a very, very large population of Hispanic peoples, uh, a you know, sizable population of African Americans. And so there is, it is diverse, and there is no uh, white, uh, you know, there's no majority. You're just as likely to see somebody of any other. So it's very much a kind of cosmopolitan, multiracial society. And, you know, it was, it was kind of interesting when I was doing research on this in California and reading all this stuff, and then you know, when I was done doing research, I'd go get, uh, you know, dinner or a latte or something. And you could really see the tangible results of that. You could see the racial diversity. You could see, you could go, you know, down the street and hear Korean or uh, or Farsi or Spanish or all these different languages being spoken. Uh, and so for the for this idea, and you see some people talking about this, the idea is that, well, they're, they're, you're right, that this is a, it's shrinking, that it's declining that there are places that are now irredeemable. Uh, and it's not coincidental that in the 90s you see a massive population uh, movement of uh, middle and, uh, and upper class whites out of California. Hundreds of thousands leave in the 90s and by and large settle in the Intermountain West. Uh, and so there's this big uh, period of immigration where people are leaving California moving to places like Colorado, Wyoming, Idaho. Uh, now, part of that is uh, economics. You could sell your house in Los Angeles for you know, $800,000, uh, 
go to Colorado or Wyoming and buy a much, much nicer house with that same amount of money. And so you see a lot of people doing that. But there's a sense, uh, especially after the, the, the riots in, in 1992, was 92 or 91, the, uh, the, the kind of Los Angeles riots and things like that, that, the, that it was, it was you know, time to move. And so you do see this this big uh, immigration in that period. Uh, but other states are following California. I mean, Texas is moving towards uh, not having a, uh, a white racial majority. Uh, Arizona is very close to doing the same thing. Nevada as well. And so there are these demographic changes, especially in the Southwest, um, that are happening. Um, and so it is sort of contracting the area uh, that you see sort of set aside, you know, this idea of this, this white man's, you know, uh, kind of promised land is sort of declining, but, and, and probably will continue to do so until it looks like it'll be kind of that, you know, inner mountain, uh, states, uh, Idaho and, uh, maybe Montana and, and those places will be kind of probably the last stand of that, of that idea. So it's probably an idea that will eventually become, you know, a kind of artifact, uh, hope, you know, hopefully, because I think having a multiracial society uh, is much better than a society of racial stratification, which is kind of what they were hoping to kind of create here. So. Mm-hmm. All right, that's great. Um, so with that, we've taken quite a bit of your time. So could you tell us just uh, what you're working on now? Well, um, I don't know. Uh, one obvious thing would be I end this in 1924, and then to continue it up more to the present, but as it was mentioned, I think the closer you get, the harder it is to, to really get uh, at what's going on. So part, uh, I thought I could have a, a second sort of a sequel, you know, uh, or whatever, a second book kind of unmaking the white man's West, mm-hmm. looking at those issues we've just been talking about and how this – uh, sort of uh, collapses and, and what the ramifications of that are and so on. Uh, uh, and so that might be a possibility. You know, when you spend 10 years working on something, you, sometimes you want to do something else for a while. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm also doing a lot of research on uh, the Texas frontier and violence in the Texas frontier and stuff like that. So um, maybe I'll do something uh, along those lines too. But so but I don't know, you know, see what happens next. Well, that sounds great. Well, thank you for talking to us today, and it's a great book. I enjoyed reading it. Well, thanks. It's been fun talking with you, Christine. So, 